Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. The year is 1991, and it's Unspooled! Unspooled! Party time! Excellent! <laughs> the movie, Wayne's World. everyone and welcome to Unspooled. I am Paul Shear, joined as always by my co-host Amy Nicholson, and we are talking about the best movies of all time. And this year we're going to 1992, Amy. 1992, DNA fingerprinting invented, nicotine patch on the market, Euro Disney in France opens, Bill Clinton is elected president, and Penelope Spears, Mike Myers, and Dana Carvey make Wayne's World. Good year. Good year. This movie felt like something we just had to do after Terminator 2 because of the Terminator 2 Wayne's World connection. Dun, dun, dun. Let's just play that now. Yes, officers. There's something wrong. Have you seen this boy? I had forgotten about that moment and I loved it. I love that he was able to parody himself right out of the gate. <laughs> Normally that would be saved for like an Allstate commercial like 20 years later, but no, he did it right away. But I also noticed that he didn't really do the full-on run of the Terminator 2. He did a different run. I, I wonder if Robert Patrick approached that character slightly differently. I, I don't know. Um, did he have different motivation? I think he might have. I think he, he might have. But one thing I'm really excited to talk to you that I have now figured out in my research about Wayne's World is that Mike Myers hated that scene, didn't want that scene in the movie, didn't like a lot of things in the cut. And whoo boy, oh, the stories of this film getting made. Oh, it's it's pretty amazing. You know, Dana Carvey has been very open about talking about his problems with Mike Myers. I mean, Mike Myers wanted Wayne's world to be literally only about Wayne. And, you know, thankfully, people really forced him to make Garth a larger part of his world. And I think the movie is better for it, uh, you know. Besides the fact that 
I think a lot of the discourse around this movie in recent years has been about how funny Dana Carvey is in this movie. I mean, Dana Carvey coming off a really bad movie that I loved as a kid called Career Opportunities, you know, hadn't really hit in the big uh, movie world yet. And this is a kind of a, a great performance to show why people loved him and why he was such a, a juggernaut on SNL at the time. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, what I found really striking about Wayne's World is, to me, this is the comedy of my childhood that refuses to die. Like even just this year at, at our Halloween party, I didn't just have like one Wayne and then also a Garth who didn't know each other and showed up and met. I had a full on other Wayne and Garth who also showed up at this party not knowing each other and met. That's four individuals roaming around as singular cells, becoming two dyads of Wayne's World. I mean, how is that happening decades after this film? Well, I also think, do we look at Wayne's World a little bit differently because it's another one of those films that is co-opted by pop culture, right? It's a movie that, you know, feels lame because everybody that you knew at the time overused the phrases. You know, that this sketch was on SNL so much. It's like, are we over it? And do we unfortunately neglect to look at how good this movie is because of where it lives in the pop culture sphere. Like, did it become cool and then not? We'll talk about why the first movie is this juggernaut and the second movie kind of fizzles out. Uh, you know, it, it's it's a really interesting moment here for comedy. But, you know, without any further ado, Amy, even though you're not worthy, you're not worthy, we're going to unspool it. The year is 1992, and we are in a fight for creative control. Can a scrappy dude who got his start on public access become a major star? Are other people going to ruin it? Does his director get his vibe? Are big money guys going to ruin everything with their lame mainstream advice? Could those big money guys sometimes be right? Or are they total losers who don't get his genius? That scrappy dude is Mike Myers, who did get his start on public access in Canada. He barged in as the host's cousin, this rocker dude named Wayne. Hey, Wayne! Oh, hi! How are you, man? Excellent! I'm great! How you doing? Party on! What are you doing here? Excellent, man! Well, why don't you come on up? <laughs> oh, yeah! Great! Come on! Fine, man! Excellent! Great! Come on! You might as well you're here now! That clip is from 1983. And Mike Myers, he's only 20 years old. Ten years later, he is going to be the biggest thing in comedy because of that character that he created. And his first movie, Wayne's World, is going to be all about his own fears of losing creative control now that his Wayne is also under the control of Saturday Night Live and Lauren Michaels and this film's first-time feature director, the great rock documentarian Penelope Spheris, who in the editing room is going to have more say than Michael Myers does. The rumors of bad blood from the behind the scenes of this movie go on for decades. Wayne's World is about two dudes, Wayne and Garth, Mike Myers and Dana Carvey, who have their own public access show in Aurora, Illinois. Wayne and Garth sign a contract with a smooth-talking TV executive named Benjamin, played by Rob Lowe, and then get bossed around and told that they have to sell out and promote an arcade. Meanwhile, Lauren Michaels, the executive behind the actual movie, tells Mike Myers that he has to sell out and headbang to Guns N' Roses. Both Wayne and Mike are like, no way, dude. We got to navigate a more authentic way to fame. And also, Wayne must win the heart of a stunning rock singer named Cassandra that's played by Tia Carrera. Authenticity. Selling out. 
It is the ultimate 90s dilemma, and Wayne's World becomes one of the most quoted films of the 90s. It opens on February 14th, 1992, and becomes not just the biggest comedy of the year, but the biggest Saturday Night Live hit ever made. Like, exponentially. Looking back, it is hard to explain what was in the zeitgeist that Valentine's Day of 1992 that made these two kind of tongue-in-cheek morons, these sort of off-putting send-ups of a very particular kind of masculinity, the most famous thing in the world. But maybe it would help just to play the number one song on the Billboard charts that weekend. It is another duo doing their own lampoon of horny, egomaniacal male energy. Another duo that thought, people probably aren't going to like this. And then we're like, oh no, they do like this. And this joke has taken over our entire lives. The song is Right Said Fred and I'm Too Sexy. Fun fact about that song, Paul, uh, Right Said Fred got told by their bosses that they didn't have the creative control to do the song they wanted. Right Said Fred actually wrote this song as an acoustic number. They thought it was going to be more of like an indie guitar. And then their bosses said, turn this into a pop song. But this, this acoustic version is probably the closest to their authentic version of I'm Too Sexy. Too sexy for my shirt, too sexy for my shirt, so sexy it hurts. And I'm too sexy for Milan, too sexy for Milan, New York and Japan. Getting sexy, yeah. Whoa, I did not know there was an acoustic I'm too sexy. <laughs> We're leading off. I mean, th- this is this is the biggest bombshell we've ever dropped here on the show. I mean, wow. Yeah. Did and then from here it. on out, they're just the dance guys. They're like, oh, we also thought of ourselves as musicians. This movie, Wayne's World, was a movie that I loved when I was a kid. I thought it was great. But I have to be honest and say that in the decades that have followed, I don't talk about Wayne's World. I don't think about Wayne's World. I think I wrote off Wayne's World. And then rewatching it, I was like, this movie is great. It is wall-to-wall bits. It has an emotional core. And it, I think, is funnier than any movie of its time in this era. Like, put it up against Tommy Boy, put it up against Austin Powers, which I know is later. But this movie holds up in a way that I was shocked by. Even like a movie like Ace Ventura, there's something about this movie that is funnier, better directed, and I think at its core, sweeter and more inventive than any of those films. I mean, it's strange, right? Because to me, I feel like Wayne's World has gotten so absorbed by the culture that I almost can't tell where Wayne's World begins and like 90s culture ends. Every single catchphrase in here, it just mutated into the way people talk. You know, it was quoted so much, right? Exactly. And I think that... It's unfortunate that a really funny movie 
can be made less funny by your coworkers and friends who quote it endlessly and make it less funny. Like, dude, like if anybody came up to us now and said "schwing," oh, the worst, <laughs> the worst. That'd be the worst person. But even when they're saying "schwing" in the movie, they're not saying it in earnest, and that's the other part of it. It's like they're not thinking that "schwing" is super funny. It's Wayne and Garth think that's funny this no you're right because we went down this thing of like they're nerds but then they got quoted so much that then they were cool but then it was like lame guys who thought they were cool but I, that's my arc of swing right the arc of swing from <laughs> from from pelvis to pendulum amy and that book that you wrote the arc of swing was one of my favorites a really <laughs> in-depth uh, examination of it and that's what we come to this show for i, I will tell you this much a couple of months ago I don't know how I stumbled down this wormhole, but I found the first Wayne's World sketch on Saturday Night Live. And I have to tell you, not funny. Like, watching it, I was surprised that this was a sketch that took off. It just felt incredibly mediocre to me. And I like Mike Myers and I like Dana Carvey, but the sketch didn't like just explode near, oh my God. It's really bizarre how some of these SNL sketches that eventually become something bigger kind of start off very muted. Yeah, I actually pulled a clip of this, which was a little hard to find because I think they've downplayed the very first Wayne's World. I mean, if you like Google, oh, what are the early Wayne's World Saturday Night Live sketches? You'll get a bunch of them, but they tend to not include this one because it has, among many things, like a date rape joke. Okay, I was necking with my girlfriend and she blew chunks on. Okay, stay calm, all right? Stay calm. I have a question. Hey, what? All right, do you still have puke on your face? No, I washed it off. Did you, like, change your shirt, dude? Yeah. Okay, where's your girlfriend now? Are you in danger of being puked on again? No, no, man, she passed out. Excellent! You told him, bad. What are you... Oh, no, I see what you guys are getting yeah. at. All right, see you later, Wayne's World. And yet nobody thought, I think, that this is going to take off. So, I mean, the story here basically is that like Mike Myers shows up on Saturday Night Live. He's only given the status of feature performer his first like year. And so, you know, he starts in like January of 1989. And on his fourth week, which is February 18th, he like kind of convinces them to give him the last sketch. And you know what last sketch means on Saturday Night Live. It's like... Oh, I see your face even. No, last sketch is the best sketch because last sketch means it's the most inventive and weird thing. That's like where Will Forte lived for years was the last sketch of SNL. Like I (laughs) tune in specifically for the last sketch because it's where the weird stuff goes. And yes, sometimes they'll miss, but I would say 90% of the time they are some of my favorite sketches. Exactly. And so like, Mike Myers has been kind of workshopping this Wayne character forever, right? Like, as we heard, he's been doing it at this point, you know, six, seven years. He's very confident in the Wayne. And so he's like, I got to do Wayne. I got to do Wayne. He convinces Lauren to give him a shot doing Wayne in the last sketch. I mean, he was doing this on CBC in 1987. And if you look at pictures, it's kind of a version of him, but in a way, a more ratty version of Wayne. Like, it looks a little bit like... Kind of the the people that were videotaping the show of Wayne's World in the movie, it looks more like that. 
Yeah, you're right. Because it's not so much that Wayne, the joke is that like Wayne has his TV show. It's more like Wayne is a dude in a band. Yes. And like Wayne only talks about music. Even after this character got invented, they kind of recycled him like in the early 80s as a guy who like won a contest to host a segment of a minute on a TV show. And he like spends it uh, on other people's TV, show, TV shows just talking about like spelling like heavy metal spelling jokes. I recall a few weeks ago, we ran a contest here in the show to win your own segment on It's Only Rock and Roll. I, I personally don't, but you may recall. Anyway, the winner of that contest is Wayne Campbell. And here he is now with Wayne's Power Minute. Hi, I'm Wayne Campbell, and I won a contest for a minute's worth of television on It's Only Rock and Roll. So here's my show, Wayne's Power Minute. All right, this show will look at things like heavy metal and concerts and stuff. Let's start with bad English and heavy metal, okay? Let's go to Led Zeppelin. Zep, right? There's an A in Led Zeppelin, right? Unless they were thinking like Led Zeppelin as in coerced Zeppelin. I don't know. I'm not Led Zeppelin. Let's have a look at Rat. Rat with two T's? Nice try. Good cover though, eh? Bonus. Let's have a look at Motley Crue. Hey, boys, that's not how you spell crew, all right? And look, there's an umlaut over the U. That's German. That's not even English. Okay, you're saying to yourself, how is it that these people don't know the three R's, right? Reading, writing, and arithmetic. Well, let's have a look at the three R's, shall we? Okay, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Reading, writing, arithmetic, only one of them's an R, all right? So why didn't they call it the war, or the ra, or the R? I don't know. Yet these guys sit and hassle people about bad English. Now you're saying to yourself, who's to blame? Well, frankly, I blame society. This is Wayne's Power Minute. All right. So yeah, he's like, Saturday Night Live, gotta make my like impact, man. And Lauren is like, I'll give you this last skit, but I don't want you to do it by yourself. He like puts Dana in the sketch. And well, Mike is I mean, a little bit weird about this. Well, there's like two sides to this story. One, which is, when you're first on SNL as a featured player, you really have to figure out the best way to get on air. And the best way to get on air is to partner up with somebody who has more cachet than you, right? It's harder to cut a bit with somebody more famous, right? So by putting Dana Carvey in the sketch, Mike Who had Myers been on since act- like 86, like he was a veteran. Exactly. It gives the sketch a better chance because... Dana Carvey brings a lot of goodwill. So you're right. Mike Myers creatively found a way to succeed by adding an established member of the show into the sketch as kind of a compromise to get Wayne on the air. Yeah, but I do think he's a little bit, I'm not going to say duplicitous. That's harsh. But oh, I think he he's definitely a... is. But I think everybody on SNL is duplicitous. Like you want to get your mm. stuff on the air. So you want to partner up with the people who are going to get it on the air. It's sort of like you are in bringing them into your world to help launch yourself. I think everyone does it. It's been going on for ages and that's fine. Like, you know, it's hard for a featured player to do a single solo sketch. But he also only gives Dana Carvey like one instruction. You know, he's like, here's what you need to know about Garth. Garth loves Wayne. Like he's designing it to be the I am the star of this show. He doesn't want this to become Dana Carvey's sketch. You know, this is like him. This is his breakout. This is his character. And so he just tells him that Garth loves Wayne to set it up as like the adore me as Wayne show. But I think that adds kind of an interesting subtext that like right from the beginning, he's saying, you know, with me as always is Garth. But there's sort of 
in his mind, a little bit of like, there was never a Garth. It was always just me. you need protein to fuel results but it's not easy when you're drinking the same bland chalky shake every day stop punishing yourself and get to gnc for the best protein in the game including all the hottest brands and crave-worthy flavors that'll keep you coming back for more we're talking protein that legit tastes like cookies your favorite cereals indulgent desserts and more so bust out of your protein rut and actually look forward to those shakes with unbeatable protein at unbeatable prices fuel your fitness with protein at gnc If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Mike Myers is a very particular performer. I think we may have talked about it a little bit when we talked about Austin Powers. He knows what he wants and the way that he wants things. And I think that in comedy, that's a good thing. But at the same time, when you're working with other really talented comedians, it can really hurt you because what you're doing is you're shutting off ideas to make your idea better. And Mike Myers, I think wants the laughs. There's a famous story about Wayne's World where when he was watching the first cut, Lara Finn Boyle, who plays Wayne's ex-girlfriend, is riding a bike. She's like waving to Wayne and then she crashes her bike into the car. She flies over the hood and off to the side and then jumps up and is like, I'm fine. And Mike Myers didn't like that she got the laugh. He's like, we need to cut that. Like, Wayne needs to be funny. And I feel like this is something that goes on throughout the entire making of this movie. Wayne needs to be the funniest one. Wayne needs to be the funniest one. And what you get with this movie is a movie that succeeds because every single character is funny. Every single character gets a moment. And I feel like that was the push and pull with Wayne's world in general. I mean, so much so that when you see Austin Powers, he's playing both characters. So he can be funny both times, right? Like he, he's not playing against anyone. He's not going to have anyone steal his thunder. And that's, it's a kind of a bummer when you see that, because even people that have very clear points of view as comedians, I think understand that when you put somebody with you to take some of the jokes or take the piss out of you, it makes you better. But at this point, he wanted it all. Well, it's funny. I mean, because this is a movie that I think is so much about the idea of a duo From the beginning, I mean, it's insisting on it. Like, the very first words we hear in this movie are coming from, you know, the television. They're talking about the arcade, but it's like Noah's arcade. It's stressing two. The two of things make things go better. There are two, you heard me, two of everything in every Noah's arcade. That means two of Xantar, Beowulf, Ninja Commando, Snake is on, Psycho Chopper. It's really good seeing you, Benjamin. You haven't been into Shakey's for so long. Well, I've been real busy. I don't, there's like this dimension of it. It's like Mike Myers is learning the lesson in this movie that, yes, two is good. Two is fine. And I think he had to learn it. I'm not going to say gunpoint, but maybe at like 
here's my pen that's going to sign a note saying I quit point. You know, like Dana, Dana Carvey once like was telling Howard Stern about how he almost quit the movie because like Mike Myers just kept cutting out all of the really funny Garth scenes. Mike was writing it and I, I was putting stuff in, right. you know, but um, then I would see that the stuff wasn't in anymore. And so I actually, three weeks before we started shooting, I said, no, thanks, but no, thanks. I actually quit the movie. Wow. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. I, 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 I it wasn't, yeah, I just, I, I'll, you know, I just, you guys go ahead. I don't want, I, I don't want to, I, I'd have nothing to do in the movie really. But you, it, they can't do that movie without you. Well, I, they, they finally, they didn't believe me at first, but I'm kind of crazy. I don't know. I'm not. A, it I wasn't a money <laughs> issue for you. It was more of a, of a, Hey, I'm a, a, I'm a romantic. I grew up with Peter Sellers and the Beatles and Stanley Kubrick. I, I didn't think of the money and fame. I swear to God, I, I, I just thought, well, I have nothing to do in the movie, so that's cool. Is that part of the rift too between you and Mike Myers? If no. there is sort of one, but but like that you were difficult to to get to the to, no. The they, they basically gave me the script, and I respectably, you know, I was respectful. I just wove in. If you're going to spew in this, spew in, you know, right. I was still being the sidekick and respectfully just wove a part for me in the movie. I I believe that he actually did quit for two weeks, um, oh, wow. and he only came back. Because Mike Myers agreed that he could ad-lib and continue to flesh out the character of Garth. Because in the scripting of Wayne's World, every time they had a script, they would just cut out Garth. And Dana Carvey was like, I don't need this. I don't want this. Get me out of here. And so he did leave. And I feel like what you're talking about with Mike Myers and the struggle of being a duo, he didn't understand how much a character like Garth actually helps Wayne. So Dana Carvey walked off the movie and only came back when Mike Myers would agree to let him ad-lib, which gave us great lines like uh, when Garth talks about, did you ever get attracted to Bugs Bunny when he dressed up like a lady? And oh, Mike I Myers, love that scene. It's a great scene. Wait, I actually want to take a second and pause that scene because to me, I think that scene really even just shows like what Dana Carvey adds to this. Because before he even says that line, the camera's on his face, you... See, you can kind of hear him laugh to himself when the idea occurs to him, and then he brings it up. Yes. I mean, that is dimension. Did you ever find Bugs Bunny attractive when he'd put on a dress and play a girl bunny? No. <laughs> no. Neither did I. I was just asking. That's the two of them, two very talented improvisers, reacting to each other. And that makes the movie, that that little scene there, it has heart. It gives this movie some weight. And I also think that Garth has a full story in this movie. Yes, it's Wayne's world, but Garth is a very prominent member in the cabinet of the presidency of Wayne. I don't know. I, I went off on a, <laughs> a metaphor I didn't believe in. But you know what I'm saying? Like, the movie is a two-hander. Right? Like, I think you could almost argue... That if Wayne did not have Garth, worshiping him is a strong word, but okay, have you ever met anybody who you're like, they're kind of okay, but then you meet their partner and their partner is so rad that you're like, <laughs> your partner's so cool that it makes me like you better? Do you know what I mean? Like, I thought yeah. you were sort of an asshole, but your partner's so great that you can't be that big of an asshole if your partner's so wonderful. I'm keeping the, the genders very neutral here, very studiously. No, but I understand like, what you're saying. It's like, because... Someone that is cool likes you or yeah. someone that I like likes you. It kind of ups your your worth. Yeah, because Wayne on his own might be a little much, to be honest. 
Wayne right. on his own, unbridled, unchecked, walking through the world like, I'm the coolest dude. Even if Mike Myers is sending up that character, it's a little bit obnoxious. You know, when you don't have Garth, you have this one-hander movie. And I feel like SNL movies definitely fell into that trap. I mean, whether it was Pat or Stuart Saves His Family, which, by the way, is a good movie. Uh, you may not think so, but directed by Harold Ramis, uh, written I've by Al Franken. It. It's if good. If you say it's, it's good, I'll watch it. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, I'm not saying it's the best of all. But, you know, I think that SNL kind of went back and forth between is it a duo movie is it a singular movie and you have like great ones like mcgruber you know oh, fantastic yeah. and then you know the one that started it all the blues brothers right the blues brothers started the two-hander that's the first i guess is that considered an snl movie it's considered technically i think like the first saturday night live movie and that makes like, if you're counting on that scale then that makes wayne's world only the second one and that's like a huge gap it's 1980 to 1992 which is gigantic you can kind of see why, like, Lauren Michaels was like, I need to have a lot of input on this. I need to make sure this movie works. You know, we did one. It was good. This one has to work. And it, I think it works to almost to, like the detriment of this Saturday Night Live film because this movie made like $183 million. And to put that in perspective, uh, Wayne's World 2 makes $48 million. And that's like the next highest grosser if you're not counting Blues Brothers. And then it just gets worse from there. It's like Whoa. $30 million for Superstar. Down, 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 down. And then it ends on MacGruber. And then they haven't made one since 2010. Wait, but is it because MacGruber the series, that was on Peacock. I don't know if that counts because the series. But I also thought that Please Don't Destroy the Treasure of Foggy Mountain was an SNL movie. I mean, Wikipedia says it is, but it also seems like it's more of a uh, Judd Apatow movie. I I'm going to put it in the SNL movie camp. But I'm not sure. I, I, I'm going to go with, uh, you know what? I won't correct you, Amy. I'm going to let you say that MacGruber <laughs> is the last one. Well, in any case, the diminishing returns talk about an arc of swing all the way down. <laughs> Wayne's World is a movie that when they hand in the script, the studio execs are like, uh, I don't get the concept of this movie. And it goes from that to a movie that when it's released makes it's money back in the first weekend. I mean, the budget of this movie was $20 million. It made it back in the first weekend. And there's a little fun Easter egg on the wall here. Um, I forget whose room it's in, but there's a Pet cemetery poster on the wall. And uh, Penelope Spheres put that on the wall because she wanted to like kind of pay homage to uh, the highest grossing female director at the time uh, who directed Pet Cemetery, And little did she know, but she would go on to dwarf that figure uh, immediately, like right out of the gate. So um, I love that she kind of looked backwards as she went forward uh, with this film. I didn't realize that was a Mary Lambert homage. Oh, that yeah. is so beautiful. I mean, Mary Lambert, by the way, amazing music video director, directed like Madonna like a prayer. She is... The ultimate, the ultimate. And I love that she and Penelope, I wonder if they were buddies. I mean, they must have been through the music world. They must have been. They oh, must I'm have sure been. like two female directors at a time where there are not many female directors in the world of music even, you know, like forget about film. Like, I'm sure. I mean, have you ever seen any of Penelope's music documentaries? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, they are just absolutely the best. I mean, you know, the ones that she had made up until this, there was like, Decline of Western Civilization 1, Decline of Western Civilization 2. The quick shorthand uh, that I would say on them if people haven't seen them yet, which, ah, you're in for such a treat. Decline 1 is all about the punk scene in the early, early days when it's like 
dark and gritty. It's kind of a dark and gritty documentary. Decline 2 is about the hair metal scene, like later in the 80s, all strip metal. It is, to me, one of the funniest comedies ever made. I just have to play a little bit of the trailer. I love Decline 2 so much. Rock and roll. Why do they do it? I'm in it for the money. (laughs) A headbanger is someone that drives by in that car and goes, how do they make a living? Um, I'm a professional musician. I don't work. I can't stand work. We don't work. This is, we play music. We are not role models for your life. And why do they get all the girls? Because they have good music and yeah, yeah, really, they're good looking. And what about the groupies? I mean, you can see, like, that's probably what got her this job. I mean, she knew Lorne Michaels. Like, back in the 70s of Saturday Night Live, the very early days, I think she was producing some of his shorts and wanting to direct them. And he was like, yeah, if you come with to me with an idea, you can direct it. She was like, I came to him with so many ideas. He never let me direct anything. But they had <laughs> known each other. And so then she does, like, the ultimate hair metal movie. And he's like, okay. And he gives her a shot on this one. But let's kind of put a couple things in perspective. First of all, Lauren Michaels makes a smart move by getting like a real director, right? She is someone who people like. She's got this cool street cred, this indie kind of street cred. So that all of a sudden makes an SNL sketch movie elevated. Then I think Laura Michaels putting her with Mike Myers is also a calculated choice. She has worked with these bands that you have to imagine are incredibly difficult, right? She has been (laughs) in the hardest situations and got gold. And Mike Myers is notoriously a tough guy to work for. We've talked about this. I'm sure Lauren Michaels on some level knew that, that he needed someone to be in there that could be very strong with the vision that they want and the opinions that they have. And all of that shows up in this movie. I mean, this movie is... Beautifully directed. It looks pretty. And when you watch a lot of these like streaming films, they look like hot garbage. Oh, they look awful. They look awful. And to see a movie like this, a $20 million movie shot on film that looks gorgeous, like even the simple style changes when you go to like the advertising section of this movie, like kind of one of the classic moments in this film, there's just a real style. Like she switches styles. She goes into different areas, gets great coverage. It doesn't feel flat. It doesn't feel brightly lit. There are real choices here. And I would argue that all those great choices that make this movie good from a directing standpoint, not a script standpoint, from a directing standpoint are non-existent in Wayne's World 2. I didn't even have the heart to watch Wayne's World 2. I thought it would make me too sad to do the oh, Wayne's yeah, World 1 no, episode. No. But yeah. I love your theory because you're you're absolutely right. Like, I've had to interview Penelope a few times. I've seen her get interviewed on stage a few times. She is a woman that never, ever hides what she's thinking, ever. Like, she will tell you what she thinks. She will fight for what she believes. The last time I saw her was at the Academy Museum. She was doing a screening of kind of her unofficial decline movie that never got released that was on OzFest 99, which is oh, yeah. so unbelievable. But she was sitting there up on the stage and my wonderful friend KJ, who programs the museum, the director of the museum, uh, the screenings was interviewing her and Penelope just kept getting distracted and saying, I think I hear a ghost. She's like sitting up on stage in front of a sold out audience and she's like, I think I hear ghosts. What's happening? And watching KJ's masterful ability to try to keep a conversation going while allowing Penelope to be Penelope it's beautiful. 
beautiful. But you, yeah, you absolutely feel like Penelope has done everything, seen everything, dealt with every type of person. She's going to be unfazed. And she's also cool as shit, right? That's the other thing, too. Like, she's cool. Yeah, she's cool. And she thought the characters of Wayne and Garth were posers. She's like, I know metal. These guys are lame. And I think that that point of view is is really important here. You know, she came out recently and talked about how the beef between her and Mike Myers is a little blown out of proportion. She said, on set, we really didn't argue. I, I feel like this is a movie that once the ball got rolling, the set was smooth. I don't know if they knew exactly what they were getting or at least what Mike Myers thought he was getting versus what everybody else thought was they were getting. But when you read about the movie production, it seems relatively smooth. Where the real issues happened were in post. Um, you know, one of the things that was going on with this film is that, you know, throughout the course of the filming of this, Mike Myers' dad is very sick. And everything I know about Mike Myers, his dad is the person responsible for Mike Myers, who Mike Myers is. Yeah, we talked a lot about this a lot in Austin Powers' episode about how that yes. character was basically created as like a tribute to his dad. That his family was from England. And so that kind of British comedy was was him paying homage to his father. To get this opportunity to make your sketch into a movie, $20 million movie, and to be going through the loss of your dad at the same time, must have been incredibly difficult, you know, so I, I definitely want to acknowledge that these stories that you hear about him storming off because his bagel didn't have margarine on it, which is disgusting margarine on a bagel. Ugh, margarine. <laughs> oh, no. Bagelgate That's... is a thing. Like, I found people still talking about Bagelgate. He didn't have any um, uh, margarine for his bagel and he's hypoglycemic. So. You don't want to get them in a bad mood, you know, because if you don't have your your blood sugar up, you kind of get grumpy. OK, so I understand that uh, he can't help it, whatever. Anyway, so I'm like waiting and trying to get some margarine, you know, <laughs> uh, but I mean, what a silly little thing. That was not a big deal. It doesn't mean that we didn't get along on the set. You know, I mean, when the movie was over and I didn't get to direct Wayne's World 2. Um, yeah. I was uh, uh, really devastated, to be honest with you. Justifiably. Yeah. and um, But I look at it like a really beautiful uh, life lesson that uh, made me stronger and that I can get over rejection. You know, after Bagelgate, Penelope Spears put her daughter in charge, personal charge, of Michael Myers' snacks. And I just realized I said Michael Myers there. But I think that's because, you know, he was terrifying when he didn't get his snacks. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think that she figured out how to work with him. He gave a great performance. When it comes time for the test screening, Mike can't be there because his dad has passed and he's busy with his family. So they do the test screening and it goes over so well. Now, Mike watches the movie for the first time alone. And according to Penelope, literally notes every joke in the entire film, gives her back 11 pages of, we need to fix this, this movie is a bomb. He is completely upset with this cut. And she's like, you weren't there, you didn't see it. It killed, it killed, he wouldn't trust her. And they really fought. And at the end of the day, I think that Mike got a handful, like maybe like five or six of his bigger thoughts in. But the movie that was released was Penelope's film. It was fully her vision. Obviously, his talent, 
the script, everything else, but it was her balancing act of making this movie work. And I, and I want to just talk about that because this movie deconstructs buddy movies. It deconstructs movies. Um, it does so many fun things, but it still doesn't undercut itself. And I, and that's what I was really impressed by. And what I think I was really blown away by with her directing style, they could do a joke where Wayne literally walks over to a door in the donut shop, opens it up, and you see like ninjas and karate guys fighting. And he goes, I always wanted to do that. And then closes the door and we go right back to the main plot. Like, and this movie is able to handle that weight. I mean, people talk to the camera. They do these moments. We talked about the ad moment. There's all these winks and nods to the camera. I mean, so much so that Garth walks off with the camera in one sequence to like give you backstory on Rob Lowe's character. And at another point, the camera walks away from Garth. Yeah, there's even that point where where um, Al Bundy shows up. And I'm just oh. going to call him Al Bundy. I'm so sorry about that. Uh, Ed O'Neill. Ed O'Neill shows up and tries to take the camera, tries to take the film away from them. I recommend the sugar pucks. They're excellent. Come on. I'd never done a crazy thing in my life before that night. Why is it if a man kills another man in battle, it's called heroic? Yet if he kills a man in the heat of passion, it's called murder. Hello. What do you think you're doing? Only me and Garth get to talk to the camera. Come on. I don't, I don't really have too, too much to say right now. <laughs> what's that? And you know what's so startling to me is like when we talked about Ferris Bueller, you know, just a couple months ago, that movie comes out six years before this. And everybody was flipping out that Ferris was talking to camera, like because it was a more revolutionary thing at the time. It hadn't been done in over 10 years. And I was like, it's so wild that we're just going for this. You know, that John Hughes is like breaking the fourth wall. And now post Ferris, it's become such a common technique. She almost has to like, yes, and Ferris, like, yes, and the idea of like Ferris at the end of Ferris Bueller being like, what are you still doing here? The movie's over. Go home. And like, yes, and that by having like Wayne and Garth asking you what you think about the movie. Well, that's all the time we have for our movie. We hope you found it entertaining, whimsical and yet relevant with an underlying revisionist conceit that belied the film's emotional attachments to the subject matter. I just hope you didn't think it sucked. Okay. By the way, I have I would be remiss if I did not call out somebody who talked directly to the camera in the same year and it was a complete and utter failure. I don't know if you'll remember this, Amy, but a little movie called Cuffs with Christian Slater. Uh, no, I do, do not. you remember Cuffs? Oh <laughs> I've my never gosh. Seen Cuffs. Do oh, I need to go Cuffs. see Cuffs? Down on his luck, George Cuffs, Christian Slater, is a broke <laughs> young man with a pregnant girlfriend, Mila Jolovich. Desperate for money, he travels to San Francisco to visit his older brother, Brad, Brooks Boxleitner, for a loan. Their reunion is short-lived since Brad operates an auxiliary police unit and he's murdered. Intent on bringing his sibling's killer to justice and continuing the patrol, George uncovers a network of corruption and sets out to expose those involved. And that's a comedy. You know what? I'm just going to pretend that you didn't Google that and you're just describing the movie from memory. (laughs) But, you know, like I, I remember that technique was so overused and this movie makes it feel incredibly warm. I think it actually helps you warm up to these characters. You get to understand them. I think what Mike Myers does so well in this first moment of the film or within the first five minutes is he introduces you to his world, his life. We get brought in. And I think that SNL characters, that's 
part of the problem. They're sketches. They're larger than life. They're not supposed to be 90-minute movies. And because they did this, they allowed you to meet and see the humanity here. Yeah, they're kind of ordinary... I'm not going to say losers. I guess I am saying losers. I don't mean losers. Well, I sort of mean losers. I mean, they're they're fuck-ups, right? Yeah. They're, they're fuck-ups, but they have buddies anyways. They can hang out in donut shops and, like, stab jelly donuts. They're like, but that's, like, kind of an almost a relatable type of, of fuck-up. They are on TV. They're on public access. People like them. Like, the first time that we're introduced to them, Rob Lowe's girlfriend is like, oh, I love these guys. Like, the big twist of this movie is that Rob Lowe discovers them and puts them in front of you know, a bigger lens, but they were already doing their thing. They already knew what they were. I but mean, they had this kind of scale too, you know, where, where Garth, his he had all these ambitions. He, when they're on that roof scene, the, the part that I really like is he's like, I wonder if I'll never go where and no man has gone before. And then he says, oh, but I'll probably stay in Aurora. Right? Right. Like that's, it's like ambition and a little bit of like recognition that we're not going to be the number one guys in the world who are going to accomplish everything we want. But I do want to say I think you're exactly right about this feeling like a different type of comedy at the time because I went back to try to figure out what was comedy like in the early 90s. Part of it was because watching this, I just thought, oh, did I not realize that Wayne's World is just ripping off Bill and Ted? But then when I looked at Bill and Ted, you know, which comes out in 1989, it's not really a hit. Like, I thought it was a bigger movie than it was, I think just because it seemed like the biggest movie in the time. But it was only number 31 at the box office in 1989. The second Bill and Ted, uh, which I love just as much, it was like 33. So they weren't massive. Like, what was kind of massive for comedy was like Home Alone, Dick Tracy, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, younger stuff, sequel stuff, Gremlins 2, Young Guns 2, if you want to count that. But I don't feel like there was anything exactly in this demographic. It's like to think about this kind of demographic of comedy, there's the Hot Shots, Naked Gun 2, but yeah, it's but not these really are very, the same. Yeah, they're yeah. not real. Like Hot Shots and Naked Gun are parodies of things, right? They're not really original voices. I feel like this is something that is very much the voice of this generation or this age group. You know, so much so that the reason why this movie didn't do well overseas is because people didn't get a majority of the references. I mean, when they do that Laverne and Shirley riff, and that's what I mean, this movie is packed (laughs) wall to wall with just bits. And it's like, we do a bit and we're back into the movie and we don't have to explain it, but they do that bit. People in France are like, wait, what the fuck? Wait, what is that? What just happened? We have no context for this, right? Um, But I think because they don't over-explain anything, it makes it better. Like, we don't have to justify why, how did they get into the Schatz Brewery? What did they do? It's like, this movie lives in this world that is incredibly grounded in one way and then incredibly heightened in another, you know? um, Oh my gosh, but do you know what? You're just blowing my mind with something you said that's now adding to that, which is, if the Pet Cemetery poster is a nod to Mary Lambert, then... Obviously, the Laverne and Shirley thing has to be a nod to Penny Marshall, the other great female director at yes. that time who'd already done big. I'm sure. She's paying homage to all her buddies. Like, in oh, I love that. I mean, it is funny that the two of them see themselves as Laverne and Shirley. I mean, right? It's like, <laughs> it's not fully for those two characters that would feel totally right on the same page. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
also think they get incredibly lucky here because they build this amazing cast. We already talked about Ed O'Neill, who just steals uh, his scenes. You get Chris Farley, who's on SNL, who has a very oddly restrained role in this, which I love. Yeah, I pulled it just because it is, from what I've read, the screen debut of Chris Farley. Like his first actual movie screen debut. He's so restrained. Most of what he's doing is just funny only in his gestures. Is this Alice's limo? No, it belongs to Frank Sharp, head of Sharp Records. Good friend of Alice's. Wow, that's like way bigger than a normal sized car. Oh, it has to be. He drives everywhere, hates to fly. He's going across the country right now to look for new acts to sign to his label. Next stop is St. Louis. And he's going to come back through Chicago on his way to Detroit. Thanks. You know, for a security guard, he had an awful lot of information, don't you think? Well, you know, and this maybe goes to that point of Mike Myers not wanting someone else to be really funny. I mean, it's it's really interesting that the movie does build to this this guy that we've been hearing about, this head of this record corporation. And it's this... Some character actor, very well played, but you're expecting it to be like, oh my gosh, here's our big cameo. And I would argue that in most SNL movies that follow this, you would see a giant cameo in that. But no, it's just a guy who kind of looks the part. I love him in that. I don't even, I'm sorry I'm not referencing that actor's name, but he's great. But the character I do want to talk about, or the actor I want to talk about, is Rob Lowe. This is big, that Rob Lowe is coming in to do a comedy movie because he needs to do something because in 1988 (laughs) we have this Rob Lowe sex scandal right and uh, I love Rob Lowe I love the way he talks about himself if you've never uh, read his book or even better listen to the audio tape of his book which is Aces he spends about all of a half a page talking about the sex scandal but the sex scandal was a big deal Um, he had a videotape of him having sex with two women And one of them was 16 years old and the other one was 22. It was a very, you know, scandalous thing, uh, obviously, for many reasons. Um, But it kind of makes him this guy that no one wants to touch. It makes this like likable, nice, honky guy. I hate to use this term because I hate this term, right? But like he's a little canceled, right? At this point, like he was on a high high and now he is not so much on a high high. Yeah. And he's got to pivot, right? Because he can't just come back to screen as like, and I'm just a normal heartthrob the way you guys saw me, right? He has to make that deliberate choice to do a comedy. He'd never done a comedy before, right? Like not this kind of comedy for sure. And not anything that just makes fun of him, makes fun of like his image, makes fun of how handsome he is, you know, like turns his suaveness into a joke. I love the champagne scene because that's just a joke that my boyfriend and I make every single time we change the name of something. It's like, well, technically in friends, blah, 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 blah. I don't believe I've ever had French champagne before. Oh, actually, all champagne is French. It's named after the region. Otherwise, it's sparkling white wine. Americans, of course, don't recognize the convention, so it becomes that thing of calling all of their sparkling white champagne, even though by definition they're not. Ah, yes. It's a lot like Star Trek, the next generation. In many ways, it's superior, but will never be as recognized as the original. I don't know this. Like, is this where that joke started? That like, well, but anywhere outside of France, it's sparkling bullshit or however you like to phrase that joke. I don't even know this joke. What's this joke? Oh, really? It's like if I was going to say to you, it's not a real cheeseburger unless it's from in and out. Otherwise, it's just a sparkling meat sandwich. (laughs) 
<laughs> I, all right. Well, I, I don't know that. And I am now happy to add that into my lexicon of bits uh, to do. Uh, it's uh, and I am not proud. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, you know, Rob Lowe, I think we see here this version of Rob Lowe that we're going to eventually get in Parks and Rec that we see in Austin Powers, this comedy version of Rob Lowe, which is really cemented here, like kind of playing into, I think, who Rob Lowe is. It was a big deal to have a sex symbol kind of do this, to drop that facade and be, look, the big joke of the movie that they go back to multiple times is that you know, Rob Lowe, his anal cavity is searched by a police officer, like, and he's walking around like that, you know, his ass hurts. And, and he's even kind of treated as like a seductive villain, right? Where it's like, Garth is so obsessed with the idea that he has ribbed condoms and books on how to pick up women that he doesn't even pay attention to the fact that he also has a diary saying he's going to sign a local cable access show and exploit them because he's just so fixated on like Rob the seductor. Yeah. Which, you know, watching it, I was thinking more about like, Questions about what does Garth know about what sex is? Does he know anything about what sex is? Is it weird that he's grossed out by the idea of ribbed for people's pleasure? I don't know. But then thinking about it again as like a a second tier joke on us being uncomfortable with who Rob Lowe is having sex with at this moment also makes sense, right? It's a a different level. And, you know, I also think that there's something to call out in the casting of Tia Carrera, who is a really interesting like love interest for a film like this because again we're talking about the 90s we're talking about this time where i feel like and look this seems like it hasn't changed until very recently pretty women were put in movies to laugh at the main character who is normally a guy like just sit there and giggle at them and i feel like she does so much more than that she's cool she's funny she's got an actual storyline yeah it's as much about like her artistry as it is about his Absolutely. They're they're almost on the same journey. They are on the same journey. You know, it's her journey is manipulated by Rob Lowe to kind of help pressure Wayne. You know, it's a very it's actually really cleverly done. She's hands down the coolest person in the movie. I mean, she's so like kind of badass in the way that you don't want to fuck with her. And, and And I love that you can then have this moment on the roof where you know Mike Myers speaks Cantonese to her. Like he learns Cantonese to speak to her. And that's how he woos her, not just by being goofy and dumb, right? Like, he's trying, and that's different. And she appreciates his trying, and that's why they connect, right? There's there's a real, like, a lot of the times, like, well, why, are this, why would these people be together? And without being too effusive about it, I get it. I understand why these two might be together. Yeah, at least for a while. I can right. see them being together for, like, a couple months and having some fun. And, I mean, I remember Tia Carrera in this movie— just seeming like she exploded out of nowhere. Like, who is this new movie star? Did you know she was on Star Search in 1985? Did you know no. that Star Search used to have an acting category? This is her in Star Search in 85. You mind if I hold your hand? Well, we've got to start somewhere. <laughs> for the champions. The judges give leading lady champion Karen Frederick three stars. Her challenge, Matia Carrera receives two and three quarters. Karen Frederick. She doesn't win. 
win. It's so sad. I don't know what happens to the girl who does win. And, you know, she did perform all of her own songs. This is also young Paul Shearer not realizing that Ballroom Blitz was a song that existed before Wayne's World. But that's her voice. um, And she never played bass guitar before. She had to learn all of the uh, songs in just three weeks. She's like, I was awful, but my fingers moved in the right way. So that was it. You know, meanwhile, Dana Carvey, when he plays the drums in that scene, uh, when they're in the, the, like the Sam Ash, that's actually Dana Carvey really playing the drums. He's that good. I just think that they made a very strong female character for Wayne to be into it. Actually, I think as I kind of dig out why I'm connected to this movie, it makes me like him more like, oh, wow. It's like what you said earlier about Wayne and Garth being together because Tia Carrera likes Wayne. I like Wayne more. Yeah. And like when Wayne, when she and Wayne get into a fight, it makes me hate Wayne. Where are you going? Chicago. Benjamin set up the video shoot. I'll be there for three days. Oh, well, I guess Benjamin will be there too. He's producing it. And what does that mean? Well, it just means that he's been paying you an awful lot of attention lately. Well, maybe he thinks I've got some talent. Maybe he's poking you. What? You think that's the way I get a gig? Well, first he screws me, then he screws you. It's Dutch door action. Could you be any more insulting? Yeah. And you know what? The way this character is written, I think a lesser version of the Cassandra character would have her get swayed by Rob Lowe. I mean, he also speaks Cantonese. He does have, like, the cool bachelor apartment. He is invested in her career. He does take her away to make this music video. And you know what? She's not dumb she doesn't fall for it she doesn't like go with him and they get kind of pulled back or she's not torn between the two of them ever she's just sort of thinking about her band and if this guy can come along for the ride and be cool about it she's into that yeah i'm down and look he's not jealous of her he doesn't want they're in different worlds you know like which i think is interesting as well you know as we're talking about casting i want to talk about cameos in this movie alice cooper hands down (laughs) one of the funniest things in this film again a weird like just side tangent like you know they get tickets to go see alice cooper which is a distraction that helps rob lowe take uh cassandra away from wayne and you know you see alice cooper alice cooper doesn't know that he is going to be doing more than performing in this movie like he just thinks he's going to be doing a song and then they gets on literally gets on set and they give him like eight pages of dialogue and they're like here do this and he does it and i the way that he does that, I rewound that scene twice. He's so deadpan. I, I would have thought that that was improvised, but apparently he's a big history buff. And him just having that conversation with them was so fucking funny to me. Like, that that sequence is so good. Do you come to Milwaukee often? Well, I'm a regular visitor here, but Milwaukee has certainly had its share of visitors. The French missionaries and explorers were coming here as early as the late 1600s to trade with the Native Americans. In fact, isn't Milwaukee an Indian name? Yes, Pete, it is. Actually, it's pronounced Miliwake, which is Algonquin for the good land. I was not aware of that. I think one of the most interesting aspects of Milwaukee is the fact that it's the only major American city to have ever elected three socialist mayors. Does this guy know how to party or what? Huh? Huh? And I think it also gets to Penelope's take on these characters, which is like, here comes a genuine rock star spitting some genuine history. 
and Wayne is not up to it and tries to yeah. make a joke about how weird it is that somebody would do that and nobody laughs. Nobody is like, yeah, your underachiever and this is charming all the time. They don't buy it. Like, it makes him not the coolest person in the room. And I think that that is a big thing for comedy that in the early 90s, I think that that kind of got forgotten about, like a sympathetic comedic lead. Well, yeah, and it makes me think kind of of Mike Myers' own childhood because, like, yes, we're talking about, like, his dad and a deep conversation. If you want the deep conversation about, like, how his dad shaped him in his ways of British comedy, uh, yeah, that's all in our Austin Powers episode. But we should also talk about his mom. And, like, when he talks about his childhood with his mom, he says his mom would wake him up in the middle of the night to watch Peter Sellers on TV, which I did not understand. I thought that was crazy. But then I was like, oh, right, because they're broadcasting it from England, so it's on at weird hours. But his mom would basically humiliate him in front of his brothers by saying he was the outcast who wasn't funny. Yes, except I wasn't funny for the longest time. <laughs> that was a big problem. And a big disappointment to him. Oh, huge disappointment. My brothers are hilarious and started out hilarious out of the gate. Yeah. And I would try you and were be a slow funny. start. Oh, my God. And, and it would be like my mom would say, Michael, you're not funny. Don't even try. It's sad now. It's pathetic. You're unfunny. You know how those funny people... You're not one of them. You're anti-funny. All right, everyone in the house, step forward who's funny. Not so fast, Michael. That was my existence. I don't believe that. It's true. Is that true? And I remember my first laugh. Michael? Yes. What does this do to your self-esteem? I have none. Is that not clear? Are you not looking at somebody who is just an open wound? Okay, I just want to like sit in the psychology of Mike Myers for a second. Everybody in your family is funny. You are told that you are not funny. So what happens to you in the inside that by 20, you're creating this character of Wayne and getting on Canadian public access? What makes you be like, everybody in my family says I'm not funny, then I will be the one who becomes a comedian. Right? Right. It, if if you're, everybody in your family was really good at swimming and you're terrible at swimming, but you're like, I'm going to make myself go to the Olympics. That's kind of what this is for him. He's driven by personal vendetta, shame. It could be a bazillion things, but it makes me kind of understand his complicated psychology. Yeah, and I understand probably how the death of his dad is playing into all of this at the same time, like his true North Star for comedy. You know, somebody else who didn't get to see how this movie played out was somebody else who benefited from it greatly. Sorry for that very quick transition. <laughs> uh, but Queen, right? So this is this is one of the bigger arguments uh, that is well-publicized about this film. Obviously, the Bohemian Rhapsody moment it's iconic it makes queen popular in the u.s a decade after they had stopped touring in the u.s like no one wanted this song in this movie lauren michaels is like no 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 that song is old that's not interesting you should do guns and roses like guns and roses do that that's more hip that's more your thing and no wait no wait think about this think about the parallel we just had we just did terminator 2 Mm -hmm. which had the exact same conversation that Arnold was right. like, if we need to have a, a music video for this movie, then our music video is going to be the biggest spin in the world. And that's Guns N' Roses. Two movies, both saying it's got to be Guns N' Roses. The difference is Arnold's like, they're cool. Then I want that. Mike Myers is like, they're cool. That's not us. I refuse. This is the battle, the battle that really happens. You know, could they get the rights? How are they going to get the rights? And they get it. They get the rights to Bohemian Rhapsody. They do it. Everybody caves to Mike Myers' demand here. And I feel like he used all of his goodwill to get this thing done, right? Because Bohemian Rhapsody meant something to him. Like he was saying, he said this to Rolling Stone. He was like, 
Him and his brother, our friend's car was a powder blue Dodge Dart swinger that had vomit on the side of it that someone chiseled in the shape of Elvis Presley. And we'd drive down the Don Valley Parkway listening to Bohemian Rhapsody. We would enter into the Toronto city limits when the rocking part would kick in. I was the Galileo three of the five. And if I took somebody else's Galileo or someone took mine, a fight would ensue. And I love that idea. Like, this is like, this is a real moment that he wanted to capture. He didn't want to put it into a Guns N' Roses song. So he got it. It won. And it brings Queen to like a whole nother realm of success because this album that it's uh, on becomes a chart topping album. Queen becomes popular again in the US. Unfortunately, Freddie Mercury dies before this movie comes out. Apparently, he did get to see uh, a, a rough cut of the scene. But whenever I've read. <laughs> things about that we don't really hear his reaction to it it's like he saw it so i don't know if he liked it or if he just saw it (laughs) i mean this has been like a whole thing of debate because it's like brian may who's like i took it to freddie he was sick he was in bed i played it to him he loved it and he said that freddie had a very dark sense of humor and he used to say quote i suppose i'll have to die before we get america back and then brian may says in a sense that's what happened and it was wayne's world that made it happen which is a beautiful story Penelope Spears says that it's kind of bullshit. My guess is it's not true. I mean, I think the only person who really, really knows is Brian May. And we might be able to ask him. But if I look at the time frame between when Freddie passed away, when I finished the film, it's really hard to believe that somebody had access to a VHS and brought it and showed it to him. Besides that, he was very, very, very sick. Oh, it breaks my heart if that's not true. But then it is also evidence of Penelope being like, I will just say the truth of what it is. That's what must happen. But knowing that there was this fight behind the scenes about whether or not to put in Bohemian Rhapsody, to me, makes it even funnier that when they start the Bohemian Rhapsody song, there has to be a moment where everybody tells Mike Myers that he made a really good choice. <laughs> with the, to insert good call. I honestly think that Wayne's World is, I'm pretty confident to say the best SNL movie, I would say followed closely by MacGruber, which is. I think just genius, but very different films. Like MacGruber yeah. is a very different film than Wayne's World. Wayne's World is. is like maybe we should do Blues Brothers though. I look, haven't really seen that movie since I was a little kid. But you know the the girl that that um, Garth has a crush on yeah. is Dan Aykroyd's wife. So there is a yes. tentative connection. I never liked Blues Brothers until I saw it in a theater, and when I saw it in a theater. That movie changed. Like, I didn't think it was funny. It feels long. It feels bloated. It feels like what SNL was in the 70s. I know SNL in the 70s has this, like, very iconic, like, oh, my God, that's when all the greats were on it. But chances are, if you've seen SNL in the 70s, you've seen the cut-down version of SNL. You've seen the Nick at Night version. You've seen, like, the best four sketches or whatever. Look, everybody always rips on SNL. And I once saw Tina Fey say to a group of people at Second City, she's like, you try putting on a 90-minute comedy show of brand new material every week. Like, yeah, there's going to be some stinkers in there, like whatever. I mean, the fact that they do it is amazing. I think the Blues Brothers fell into that same kind of trap. It's bloated. It's a lot of musical numbers. It's it's weird. You know, I think the characters are a little bit distant there. Everything that this movie does really well, I don't think that movie does as well. But when I saw it with a crowd, I was like, oh, I get it. I get this movie now because I think it is meant to be more of a spectacle movie. It's it's a big, fun movie. This, conversely, was a movie that, yes, I saw it in a crowd when I saw it when I was a kid, but I watched it at home. I was laughing out loud so much. So, I mean, honestly, that I mean, that's really what we're saying is like we started off this podcast talking about the tremendous pressure 
that is on everyone from Lorne Michaels trying to compete with this hit, this movie that made $115 million, Blues Brothers, in 1980. Bring out this character with an actor who doesn't want to share the screen and doing something where they're taking a character that should never probably be the lead of a film and making it a grounded film that still has these heightened elements that feels like an SNL sketch. Like this movie is the perfect combination of everything. And then quickly they pop the balloon because I think they get overconfident. They don't realize all the work they put in to get this movie to where it is. They give up on everybody that helped them get there, which is something we see a million times over and over again. I don't even remember bits from Wayne's World 2. I looked it up to try to remember what the music was on that soundtrack. So I was like, wouldn't now metal be officially on cool by the time of Wayne's World 2? And the soundtrack was like Gin Blossoms and Dinosaur Jr. It's like, who would they be listening to even in that time? But yeah, like Penelope Spheris was basically told by Lauren, he was like, you can have final cut on this one. You can keep it the way that it is. And if you do that, Mike will probably not approve you as a director on Wayne's World 2. And she said, OK. And she just stuck to her guns and made this movie be the movie she wanted. And she's her quote now is like, go ahead and criticize me, you, me all you want. But look at the numbers. You know, I don't care yeah. because I was right in the end. Maybe it's almost like the Casablanca lesson, like. The more cooks you have in a kitchen, sometimes you make a good film, which is in a way the opposite of the point of what the movie says it is about, which is it's got to be the two original guys. It's got to be the guys doing it. Once you have like corporate interference, it's going to get all haywire. They're going to take your sound. They're going to take your theme song. They're going to make it crazy, man. Wayne's World is brought to you by Noah's Arcade. Party on, Wayne. Friday, it's 11.30, it's time to party with your excellent host, Wayne Campbell, and with him as always is Garth. Party on, Wayne, and party on, Garth. Wayne's World! Okay, uh, welcome to Wayne's World. Party on, Garth. I guess. Okay. But maybe corporate interference is good? Oh, God, is that like, is that really no, the message? No, no, I mean, no, it no, can't no, be, no, but like... no, that's not the message. I think the message is this. And maybe this is just for comedy. You have to have a vision and a tone, obviously. That's something that is important. But you need to collaborate. I, I'm a big believer. I've come from the background of improv comedy. And improv comedy is like you trust your partner, you build with your partner, and because you're building with your partner, you create something really great that is unexpected. That's where Mike Myers comes from. He comes from Second City. He's quoted in the book of improv from Second City as being one of the, the great improvisers. He understood what this character was. And when he opened himself up to having people like Penelope, even Lauren Michaels and pushing him in different directions. And, and of course, Dana Carvey, like adding to his vision. It's not about bringing in corporate people like the corporate people in this movie. They make it showbiz, right? They, they kind of they polish it up. They they do the bad version of Wayne's World. They, the corporate people actually make Wayne's World, too. Wayne's World 1 is a collaboration of the people making the show in the basement, if that makes more sense, right? The actual arguments and the collaboration make the first one better. You know what really struck me watching Wayne's World this time is this beautiful adventure that you and I have been on, Paul, of watching all of the greatest movies of all time and then expanding our knowledge to include other things that we also think are great. I feel like it has given me this backdrop to be able to see Wayne's World with like a deeper lens, you know? 
to not only see that Wayne's World is like building off of the Ferris talking to the camera jokes, to see that like Wayne's World, even just by being a show about people hosting a TV show, is building off of Pee Wee's Big Adventure, you know, which we recently watched. It's building off of Pee Wee's Playhouse. Jokes like you know, the camera of their own like uh, show kind of zooming in and out, so like extreme close ups, blah, blah, blah. That is completely like a Pee Wee joke, you know? Right. And then I like, Found out later on that Wayne's World uh, was definitely inspired by Pee Wee's Playhouse. Like specifically, uh, Mike Myers really liked the idea of making a show that existed kind of in no no timeline at all. You know, where it was sort of 50s, but sort of 90s, but sort of 80s. And having a character who was ageless as like Wayne is. Because Wayne is like a little bit old to be living with his parents if he's played by Mike Myers in 1993. But if you're making it ageless, it, it's fine. But you know what really stuck out to me here? I never realized before that I think Wayne's World and I'm going to make this argument, is inspired by Singing in the Rain. Because, like, to me, my favorite scene in Singing in the Rain is when they're trying to adjust to, like, learning how sound equipment works. And, you know, there's a little bit of, like, they have to talk into the plant. They have to talk into the flower. They keep messing up. They keep messing up. And I think Penelope is, like, deliberately paying homage to that scene when Wayne and Garth are learning how a blue screen works, when they're learning how countdowns work, how to make their show more professional. All of those repeats, I swear, I think that is her using this movie and linking it all the way back to Gene Kelly. All right, uh, can we bring in the blue screen? Let's try one. Ready to cue Wayne and Garth, and go. Okay. In five, four, three. Good, Terry. Uh, Wayne, Garth, don't count along. We see your mouths moving again. In five, four, three. Guys, you're nodding. Once again, Terry. In five, four, three, two. <laughs> okay, welcome to Wayne's World. Party on, Garth. Party on, Wayne. Okay, we've got a new feature on Wayne's World this week, which allows us to travel through time and space. It's called Chroma Key, and it's really handy if you want to go to New York. Hey, we're in New York. I've got a gun. Let's get to a Broadway show. Hi. I guess kids get this. All right, I mean, I'm on board. Think? I mean, you no, know, I think it's, <laughs> it, no, I think that you're right. I think it's about like it's it's Wizard of Oz going from you know black and white to Technicolor. It's like the, these characters and and how they're fighting against it. But I think you're right. Like there's a an industry thing there. I I was actually going to go forward and say what I think Wayne's World does and why it works is because it captures something culturally relevant to people who want to go see movies. And I would say that I see that in things like Dick's the Musical and uh, Bottoms. I haven't seen anything like those movies, right? But they very much seem to capture a voice that is fresh and fun and different and not conforming to certain rules and feeling like, oh, we have a chance to make our movie now. And that's what it feels like with Wayne's World. Like, I haven't seen that James Bond joke or maybe... I have, but I didn't see it with that kind of flair to it. Like, I feel like it's our chance to make a movie. We're going to make the things that make us laugh. I'm going to put Bohemian Rhapsody in because it makes me laugh. Like, this makes me laugh. Not like, what do people want to laugh? It's like, what makes me laugh? What made me kind of sad to think about is that even just where Wayne and Garth are doing their show, public access, it barely exists nowadays. You know, public access has been like pretty decimated I was even looking around like, what would it be like if Paul and I moved this, moved this podcast to like public access? Like, how could we do that? Is it an untamed space? And it seems maybe extinct, close to extinct in a way that I find a little bit depressing. What would Wayne and Garth be even doing now? 
And I think one argument, listening to this clip from Saturday Night Live, is that they would basically be us. They would basically have a podcast. Best movie of 1990. And the Oscar pick goes to Dances with Wolves. All right. You know, Dances with Dances with Wolves, you know, might win the Academy Award. And monkeys might fly out of my butt. <laughs> All right. All right. Yeah. Three hours, very boring. You know, they should they should have made it like, you know, dances with squirrels, with like mental squirrels biting people's faces off. So Paul, I just want to ask, are we the Wayne and Garth? (laughs) Can I be Garth? I would rather be Garth. Can I be Garth? Yes, you could be Garth. I well, I mean, I you know I have to grow out my hair, Um, but it does make sense. (laughs) I do wear a lot of baseball caps. Uh, Garth and I basically have the same hair. There's always going to be people that are going to be able to get their voices out there. I just think it's going to be in different ways and more niche ways. Like, you know, you'll be in a room of people that recognize maybe one or two people because they follow them. And then the other people, you don't know who they are. It's like we are in a different world of celebrity now. It's it's hard, I think, to be a big celebrity or to break, even break through now. Because what is even breaking through? What does that even mean? What this movie wrestles with is truly an age old question. Can you sell out without selling out? Can you go big without carrying the weight of everyone's expectations on you in a way that it actually dilutes what you do? And Wayne and Garth fall victim to that. But Mike Myers, Dana Carvey, Lauren Michaels, and Penelope Spheres did not. They took something that was completely original and they made something that was unique and sure-footed, and to quote Penelope Spheris, the proof is in the receipts. You see, that movie worked because of that. With success, you get egos, and sometimes people's first bit of work is the best because they're forced to collaborate, they're forced to make concessions, and as you get less and less people that are willing to be honest with you, you make less and less changes. And maybe that's while we look at projects and say like, oh my gosh, look at this auteur, the auteur voice, the auteur voice. I get it. In film, you need an auteur. You need somebody to be driving that ship. But you should hopefully surround yourself with people who know what your vision is and is additive to it and be respectful and pull them in because they're going to make you better. I think this is an age-old question. I think this is why this movie works. I think this is why this movie doesn't feel incredibly dated. I think it feels alive because, like you said with Singing in Rain, it is about transitioning and doing it with grace. Then maybe I'll just end with this quote from Penelope Spheris, who would said this about Mike Myers. She said, I hated that bastard for years. But when I saw Austin Powers, I went, I forgive you, Mike. You can be moody. You can be a jerk. You can be things that others of us can't be because you are profoundly talented. I think that is a good opening for us to play Austin Powers next, to play a little teaser of that if you haven't gone and heard that episode. It does get very deep into the psychology. It gets deep into uh, the scandal that broke Dana Carvey and and Mike Myers' friendship after this, which has to do with Austin Powers, specifically the character of Dr. Evil. Jim Carrey was supposed to be Dr. Evil. And that, to me, is really interesting because Jim Carrey is essentially doing that in Sonic. Um, Ugh. you know how much I love Jim Carrey in the Sonic movies. I do too. I think he's great in it. Uh, I think he would have been great in this movie as well, but without Jim Carrey playing Dr. Evil, we basically get to see Lauren Michaels. I mean, 
For a long time, it's been rumored that that is Lauren Michaels. It has now essentially been confirmed that is Lauren Michaels. And I will tell you that having met Lauren Michaels, when I met him the first time, I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. Like, I get it. Like, it, it is shocking how much that's Lauren Michaels. And you don't really get it until I got it. But seeing him talking to him, I was like, it's undeniable. It's it's so undeniable. And I think that that gives this movie this energy. Like it, the reason why he can improvise so well, the reason why he knows that character so well is because it is part of him. It is. However, there is some drama behind this because it is Mike Myers doing an impersonation of Dana Carvey doing an impersonation of Lauren Michaels. Then that this kind of almost theft of St- of Dana Carvey's impersonation, I think caused a huge rift between Wayne and Garth. Huge, huge rift between Wayne and Garth. I'm so glad we did that episode. And I know that Austin Powers, you know, maybe that's not in your 100 best movies, but I do think the effect of that movie, the effect of Wayne's World kind of reverberates around a lot of movies. And I, I love getting into like these years and you start to see these patterns of how these movies affect culture. And I think we're building this tapestry throughout the show always of, you know, the influence of these films are felt all over the place. That was a really fun episode for me. Like I always will think of that and Shrek back to back as just as two movies I didn't expect to cover as soon as we did. And I'm so happy that we did. Yeah. I didn't think that we'd be Michael Myers completists essentially. I know. But here how, we is, are. how have we done more Mike Myers movies than <laughs> And other we did like one Tom Cruise movie, have we? Yeah, we, done a, we have some catching up to do. We do. We've only done one Steven Soderbergh movie, which makes me think I think it's time Ooh. to do a second one. I was trying to think of like what would be a really fun, fun, fun movie to do next. That is also just great, you know, Academy Award nomination for screenplay. I think a gigantic impact on the culture as well. I want to do Steven Soderbergh's Out of Sight. Jennifer I'm Lopez, so George Clooney, a movie that just hits, hits, hits. A movie that is another type of thing I'd like to see more of today. I, I'm a big fan of this movie. Uh, also a great soundtrack on this one as well. Screenplay by Scott Frank, who uh, has gotten a lot of press recently as being one of Hollywood's best script doctors, also known for writing uh, The Queen's Gambit. Uh, but there's a great article on Scott Frank. Anyway, we'll get into all of this uh, next week. You can watch Out of Sight wherever you stream your films and also check out your local public library. Before we go, uh, my book, Joyful Recollections of Trauma, is now available for pre-order. Uh, yes. So I would love it if uh, if y'all did me a solid and, and you pre-ordered the book. That would be amazing. And if you do, uh, save your receipt because I have some really cool, fun incentives that are coming up. Not like uh, bullshit ones. These I'm putting out my own money to do some cool, fun incentives for everyone who's bought the book. I'll talk about that as I get them more locked in. But uh, Joyful Recollections of Trauma, wherever you get your books or your audiobooks, uh, it's stories of, of my life, and uh, I think you will like it. Um, all right, we'll see you next week for Out of Sight. A big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, and our executive producers, Cody Fisher and Amelia Chapelo, and our MVP... Molly Reynolds. Our theme song is by Michael Cassidy, and our fan art is by Kim Troxell. Follow Unspooled on Twitter and Instagram and join in the conversation about all things Unspooled on the Paul Shear Discord at discord.gg slash 
Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, and you can get a deck of unspooled playing cards and more merch at podswag.com. Finally, see the official API list of unspooled films and more about the show at unspooledpod.com. 